0: All right. Well, if you're new to uh, to this Bible study or you haven't been in here, we've been, uh, for the last two weeks, looking at the background of Deuteronomy. We're about to jump into a study of Deuteronomy in the class. And so as I was studying Deuteronomy, I just, more and more, was like, we, you have to have a grasp of what's happened before Deuteronomy for a lot of the things in Deuteronomy to really make sense. And so what we did is... Two weeks ago, we did kind of a background, who wrote it, when did you write it, why did you write it, all of that stuff. Last week, we looked at the books of Genesis and Exodus to, to give a, a, a brief overview, but to really hit certain parts that you just need to be in your mind, because they're going to pop up over and over in Deuteronomy. And then this week, we're going to look at Leviticus and Numbers, uh, and that will lead us right into Deuteronomy that will start uh, when I get back. I won't be here next week. Um, Caleb Bird will be uh, filling in for me next week, but then I'll be back the following week, and we'll... Jump in Deuteronomy one. So I hope this is a blessing. If you uh, the notes, I'm not putting the notes up here today. I'll just put the uh, the outline. But I have copies of the notes in the back if you want to follow along. And the reason I did it that way was just because the last week I started making a slideshow and it was just too long. <laughs> and I just thought, just look at those, follow along with me, take it home, and uh, and and you do have homework in this class. You have to read. Uh, someone told me this morning that the homework was too hard. but uh too much (laughs) but uh i I was just saying i think it would be very beneficial to be reading through these four books before we jump into deuteronomy uh like i said because then it's fresh on your mind um and i think it makes it'll help things make a lot more sense it's not like we won't look back as we study uh parts especially when they start mentioning place names and covenants and things like that um but hopefully this this background will be so last week like I said if, if you weren't here or even if you were here a little bit of a reminder we looked at Genesis and exodus and and just the main highlights of Genesis and Exodus is one in Genesis uh, 10 and 11 you basically have the establishment of the nations you see how the nation of the the, the nations of the Canaanites uh, were formed from the descendants of Ham that starts then you got the descendants of Eber which is is the line of from the from the line of Shem which is the line of the, the Hebrews, or what will become the Israelites, and those are just important to understand, and just how the world, uh, how the nations were formed, and, and you know, all these people came from three sons, they got off that boat, they would have known the truth of God on day one, but somewhere along the way did not teach their children in the way that were called to do about God, and, and as that uh, carried on, you have the establishment of many nations uh, that, that uh, are not worshipping uh, the God that delivered Noah and his three sons through the the flood. Uh, In Genesis 12, 12, 13, 15 are really key uh, chapters about the Abrahamic covenant. So God chooses Abraham, brings him out of the land of Haran, uh, tells him to go into Canaan, gives him a, a promise, and then makes a covenant, ratifies the covenant in Genesis 15. Uh, and there's basically three points to this covenant to remember, especially in light of Deuteronomy, that God has promised to give Abraham a piece of land, a desi- I mean, uh, with borders, land borders, uh, sea borders, river borders, and he tells him this is the land that I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. He calls it his own land, so it's, it's God's land, and he gives that land to Abraham and his descendants after him. And then we see that that promise or that covenant is passed through the line of Isaac and then through the line of Jacob. And so it's the covenant that God makes with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land, to make them a nation, and that all the earth would be blessed through them and their descendants. Um, and so that's very important. That pops up all over Deuteronomy. In fact, I mean, that's, that's what Deuteronomy is all about. Here's three sermons before you go into the land that I promised your forefathers, promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, And then we see how Israel is taken down to Egypt through what happened to Joseph in his life. And that's where God builds the nation of Israel in Egypt. So he's building a nation within a nation for 400 years. And then at the beginning of Exodus, he gets his nation that he's built, his people. And he brings them out of Egypt to put them in the land. Which again, is what we're on the, the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy, about to cross the Jordan and go into the land. Exodus, like I said, is uh, the first chapters God building that nation in um, Egypt. Uh, he raises up Moses to bring them out of Egypt in the first four chapters. And then you got the actual deliverance of the people of God or of Israel from Egypt. Uh, in Exodus 19 and 20, they make it to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is also called Horeb. It's also called the mountain. And it's also called the mountain of God. So if you see any of those four names, it's always referring to this place where God... Showed up in fire and darkness. His presence was there on the mountain, and he gives Moses the law and tells the Israelites what they're to be—a nation, a kingdom of priests, uh, his own possession, a nation that he has set apart uh, to be to be uh, uh, his people on this earth and to uh, to know his truth and to um, to to live his truth amongst all the nations. Um, again, in uh, not again, but in Exodus 24, he ratifies his covenant with Israel. Israel declares that they will follow. They will obey him. They will submit to all that he said in his law. And then immediately after that, they break that covenant and worship a golden idol. The Lord is, you know, like done with them. Moses reminds the Lord of, of all the promises made to Abraham. Not that God need a reminder. This is more about Moses and his faith. Um, and uh, he does not wipe out the nation of Israel because, again, he cannot break his own covenant and his own word. And so in Exodus 33, 34, you got the the uh, renew or the renewal of the Mosaic covenant or the covenant with Israel. Uh, and then after that, he gives them all of the uh, instruction on how to build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is built in Exodus 40. And that's where we left off last week. So we left off in Exodus 40 uh, with the tabernacle being built. Now, today, we're going to look at Leviticus and Numbers. And in Leviticus and Numbers, like I said, we're not going to go through every part. We're not going to go through every significant part. But it's really the things to just kind of tune into as we jump into Deuteronomy. Because this is going to pop up. And it's just good to know these things. So, um, I'll try to, and in your notes, I wrote down some of the main verses that I think are helpful to know. But here's an outline of Leviticus. Again, anytime you outline a book, it's, it's to try to pull it together in some systematic way to go, okay, here's what's happening in these sections. So you may have seen this laid out differently. There's no, like, uh, inerrant outline of any of these these books. But basically, I, I divided it up uh, with you got all of the, the sacrifices, kind of how God or the Israelites are to worship. God, I called it the way to God in 1 through 17, and I think I stole that from someone. And then in the second part here, the walk with God, this is more about laws for the people, the priests, and their own sanctification, being a nation set apart for him, uh, how they are to live their lives in light of the law that he's given to the Israelites. And so I'll just leave this up there, and then we'll kind of look through the notes. But that's kind of an outline, a, a, a high view outline of Leviticus. Uh, one of the things to know right out the gate, you actually have some time markers here in the in the Bible. Um, in your notes there, uh, we know that Leviticus took one month because at the end of Exodus, in Exodus 40, verse 17, it says, now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, uh, the tabernacle was erected. Uh, we learned last week that would be one year to the day that they departed from Egypt. Uh, and we have other time markers. Actually, I, I didn't put them in your notes, but... Uh, if you look at Exodus nineteen, we know it's in the third month, the, uh, the first day of the third month that the Israelites, uh, after leaving Egypt, made it to uh, Mount Sinai. So it took them two months to kind of go through the wilderness to get to Mount Sinai. They were there for ten months at Mount Sinai, getting the law. Moses going up there, then worshiping the idols, all that stuff, erecting the tabernacle, um, and then we know from here that it's the first of the second month. I'm sorry, the um, here we got uh, the first, yeah the first of the second month in the second year in Numbers 1, 1 through 2, which means we're one month past that, which means Leviticus uh, took one month. And we know in Numbers 10, 11 through 12, it says in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted and they set out from Sinai. So from the end of Leviticus to the numbering of the people and them, them setting out into the the desert to head to the promised land, basically took um, another 20 days. And so, again, it just kind of helps you. To me, that helps. I'm sitting here reading this book, and you start going, okay, so this is when this happened, and this is what he was doing. So the whole book of Leviticus is God uh, telling Moses, and Moses telling the people God's laws for both worship and for the people's sanctification. Uh, And that's like a month period of time before they're numbered and before they head out. So when you're reading this, that kind of gives you an idea of, of when this happened. There's very little, actually, like word for word, from Leviticus in Deuteronomy. Uh, There's definitely implications on a lot of the stuff that's happening in Leviticus, but there's not a lot of stuff from Leviticus in Deuteronomy. Mainly it's happening in Deuteronomy 12 through 18, as Moses reiterates uh, some of the the things that the priests are called to do and some of the, um, the ways that God sets his people apart from all the other nations. Uh, And there's not a lot of action in the book of Leviticus. It's a lot of talking. There's not a lot of moving, not a lot of events that go on. uh, But there's a lot of important information. And a lot of this stuff has major implications on Christ and what Christ will do. and, And there's, you know, if you go read Hebrews, I mean, it is like quoting things from Leviticus very frequently and pointing to Christ. So, again... It's not unimportant. We're not saying that at all. We're just saying when it comes to Deuteronomy, there's not a lot of this that's reiterated in Deuteronomy because Moses is talking to the second generation and giving them instruction on what they are to do as they go into the land. But all that being said, here's a brief overview of Leviticus. So the tabernacle has just been built, the glory of God has now filled the tabernacle, which Moses can't go in. I mean, so God's presence is there in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. And now God gives the Israelites instruction on how he must be worshipped. So they're his people. He set them apart. They built this place to worship him. He's revealed who he is. And now he's saying, and this is how you worship me. And in the first section here... He basically lays out five different sacrifices. The burnt offering, the grain offering, peace, sin, and guilt offerings. Um, And then the restitutions, if if they sin against someone else, how to do that. And the roles of the priests in these sacrifices. That's what those first seven chapters are all about. And like I said in your notes there, at the very end of chapter 7, there's a lot of these in Leviticus, like summary statements, almost like this is what this section is for. At the very end of Leviticus 7, it says, This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and the ordination offering. And the sacrifice of peace offerings, which the Lord commanded Moses in Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord uh, in the wilderness of Sinai. So again, after all the different sacrifices on the instruction on how to do it, and it goes through all the things a priest must do and where you know, how to slaughter the animals and all that, um, he's basically saying, this, these are the sacrifices. Then, in chapters 8 through 10, it starts going through the laws of the priests. So the priests that will be doing these sacrifices on a regular basis for the nation of Israel in order to worship God, uh, he basically sets Aaron and his sons apart, and there's, it's kind of like an ordination service. There's a, they're, they're being uh, consecrated or sanctified and set apart for a, a, a purpose, um, and they do the offerings that are required for them to be set apart. And then in chapter nine you have the first sacrifices of the people of Israel, the first time they worship Yahweh God in this way. And there at the end of chapter nine you got the verse. It says Moses and Aaron went to the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and the fire came out from before the Lord at the mercy seat in the holy of holies, and it consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Again, a, vis- a visible. Uh, um, manifestation of the presence of God, basically taking the sacrifice and, and Israel seeing uh, the, the power of God, the, the glory of God as he consumes the, the sacrifices there. And just one more thing, as we've talked about Israel over and over and over, I mean, they saw him. They saw him divide the Red Sea. They saw the plagues. They saw the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. I mean, they were, were blessed to, to, to know God is with you. And the things he requires and the things he says not only are true, but he is there articulating audibly from Mount Sinai, giving Moses the tablets. I mean, you know, you you look at this, and and they had so much evidence. But again, like we read in 1 Corinthians 10, you know, don't look at yourself and assess yourself higher than them. We, in the same way, have everything we need revealed to us in his word Um, and uh and we and, and we got to make sure we don't make the same mistakes that Israel made as they forsook the Lord and turned from him. Which is what happens in chapter 10. I mean, think about that. You just saw the fire of God come out of the Holy of Holies, consume the burnt offerings. And then Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who were already consecrated and sanctified to do the offerings, uh, offered strange fire to the Lord in some way that he did not prescribe. And the fire of God consumes them. Again, which brings fear to the people um, to show them that God is to be worshipped the way that he's called to be worshipped. And that's going to have implications uh, on on the rest in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Then you got the laws of purity uh, in chapters eleven through fifteen, and basically these are laws for Israel's sanctification. It's the clean and unclean stuff, you know. So again, it's not sinful, but if you're unclean, then you may not worship God until you've been made clean. And so there's a lot of clean and unclean things here in Leviticus eleven forty four through forty seven. You kind of see the pur- again a purpose statement of these laws. He tells them to consecrate themselves. Uh, therefore, he says, "And be holy, for I am holy." Again, as they come to worship Him. He doesn't want them coming to worship Him uh, thoughtlessly or in any way not prescribed. And it sets them apart. Uh, He says, you'll make yourselves unclean with any swarming thing. This is all the food stuff. Uh, I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy for I am holy. Um, And then he says, uh, he's making a distinction between the unclean and the clean. And between the edible creature and the creatures that are not to be eaten. Again, it's just, there's, there's many laws like this that just make them distinct and different. They're not like the nations around them. And they have certain prescriptions that they obey because it's just what God said. Uh, and it causes them uh, to, uh, to, to be uh, set apart you got in chapter 12, the laws of motherhood, chapters 13 through 15, the laws of leprosy, diseases, and other things like that. Mainly for the priests to know what to do when these d- diseases arise amongst the people. If you think about it, diseases shouldn't be there if they were submitting to God and obeying his law. But diseases will happen um, because they will be disobedient. Uh, but when they happen, he gives them prescriptions on on what to do. Um, and uh, and again it 's all about cleanliness and uncleanliness, and them not uh, coming into his presence or into the tabernacle and defile, defiling the tabernacle in chapter uh, in um, Chapter sixteen through seventeen. Uh, you got the, the laws of national atonement. This is very important. Uh, and this is the day of atonement. There's a, uh, one day once a year where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. Uh, you got sin placed on the scapegoat that goes out into the desert. That's a representation of their sin being you know, cast into the furthest part of the sea. It's, it's, the, the sin leaves Israel. And then the other goat that's sacrificed for Israel... Uh, and the blood that, that pays for the sins. And all that, again, has major implications on Christ and what Christ has done and all that. But for Deuteronomy, uh, he'll talk about the Day of Atonement. Um, and in Leviticus 16, 29 through 31, and then 34, he tells them, this will be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls, not do any work, whether native or alien, who sojourns among you, for it will be on, th- uh, on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And so again, all these things do point forward to Christ, and we could go into all that, but that's not where we're heading right now. But all that being said, it's not that you know, bloods of goat, uh, the blood of goats and bulls, and we know all that from Hebrews, never actually cleansed sin, but it was their faith in obeying what he said that pointed forward to the one sacrifice that would, but still, their, their sins were cleansed because of their faith in God. They trusted what he said, and they obeyed him. Um, and uh, it's always by grace that we are saved through faith. We talked about that last week. It's never been any different. Um, they're looking forward to the sacrifice that will come. We look back at the sacrifice that has been made, but it's all through the blood of Christ. All that being said, this was the day of atonement, and he laid out exactly what they must do for their sins to be forgiven. Uh, and they did this uh, every year, once a year. Uh, and then in verse 17, we get an explanation of the blood. It says in uh, verse 11, for the, fle- for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So again, it is the, the life that is sacrificed uh, that makes atonement for the people of Israel. All these things have direct implications on what Christ will be, the perfect sacrifice, sacrifice once for all, uh, for not only the people of Israel, uh, but for all of mankind, but again, you see here that this is all like I said, uh, the beginning of them understanding what their sin is, what it costs, and how that sin will be atoned for by the Lord. so this is how it happens before Christ, uh, but it all points to Christ. the second half of their sanctification. This is where you get into all the laws of the people, the laws of the people of Israel, what makes them distinct and set apart from all the nations. Um, and, uh, and again, he, he says uh, in verse uh, chapter 18, 2 through 5, speak to the sons of Israel, say to them. Now, this is important, and this does have implications on what we're going to read in Deuteronomy, what happens in Numbers, and then what happens immediately after that in the book of Joshua, uh, because um, they, they don't do this. In fact, they, they want to be just like, the, the, the nations around them, and they never stopped worshiping the gods that they brought with them out of Egypt. Um, but he says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt. So don't bring any of your traditions, your habits, your gods, or anything like that. He, he's, he's taken them out of that slavery and bondage, and now they are his. They belong to him, and they are to worship him and him alone and to be distinct from all nations on this planet. He says, um, you, uh, Nor are you to do what's done in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So, again, all these laws he gives them in this section are to make them distinct and different. You're not like the Egyptians. You're not like the Canaanites. You're not like anybody else on this planet. You're mine. You belong to me. And the way that you eat, the way that you treat one another, the way that you live, the way that you worship, the way that you conduct your government is distinct and different than all other nations because I am prescribing to you, the God of all the universe has shown up and made you a nation, brought you out, and I'm telling you exactly who to be so that you will be my people Uh, In that, there's all kinds of different laws laws against immorality, laws against idolatry, laws to love one another, uh, laws against human sacrifice and immorality. Uh, Obviously, immorality is something that we are very prone to immediately all the time. And that was what has happened in Canaan, it's what's happened in Egypt, it's what's happened around us. It's never not happened. Our nation is not unique. Yes, we're on the decline, and yes, it's awful here, and yes, there's sin everywhere, but there always has been, and there's been many worse, uh, and we must not be like this culture. We are distinct and different. We're set apart. Even in the New Testament, he talks about the church in the same way. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. Those are distinct, but we are called uh, to the same, uh, very similar purpose, if you want to say it that way, and we are called to be set apart to distinct and holy like he is holy. At the end of Leviticus 20, 22 through 26, you again get a summary statement of kind of what's going on here. And he says, You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that, look at this, the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. So, I'm bringing you into this land. This is something I promised to Abraham. That's an unconditional, unilateral covenant that God must do because he swore by himself as Abraham was asleep. However, the Israelites must obey the law he gave in Mount Sinai or he will... Kick him out of the land. Now, the land is always theirs. The land still belongs to Israel. It's still God's land, and he will put Israel back in that land. He can't not. But all that being said, they have a conditional covenant here. You must obey what I say, or part of that, part of what will prove my my glory and my word is that I will do to you what I've already said, which is kick you out of the land, and we'll see more of that in a second. Uh, He goes on to say, Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations, which I'm going to drive out before you, for they all did these things, therefore I have abhorred them. Uh, Hence, I have said to you, you are to possess their land. So again, this gives you an understanding of why? God's doing a few things here. He's, he's fulfilling the promises to Abraham, what God told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he would do. He's punishing the people of the land of Canaan for their sinfulness, which is something God continually does to nations. And he's using the people of Israel to do both of those things. He says, I myself will give it to you, so I'm giving you this land to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, land, 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 land. We talked about that last week, and you're going to see it in Deuteronomy. Every time you see land, we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, Something God promised Abraham before there was ever even a nation of Israel. And something he told them was his land forever. It's, a, it's an unending promise. He says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean, the unclean animal, the birds, all that stuff. Uh, he says, um, uh, thus you are to be holy to me for I am, I am the Lord. I, I'm sorry, for I the Lord am holy and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. After that, he goes into more laws of the priests on how they are to regulate um, uh, worship, sacrifices, relationships. And then these last two things are in Deuteronomy and are, are pretty prominent in Deuteronomy. In chapter 23, you get the, the list of the feasts, the spring feast and the fall feast. They're called the appointed times, and they're also called the feasts. There's all kinds of cool stuff to talk about when we talk about the feasts. But just for now, understand, this is something the Israelites we called to do every year. They observe the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Firstfruits, and the Feast of Weeks in the spring. And then in the fall, there's the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, he's going to mention that again in Deuteronomy 16, because these people will be, will be dead, uh, and, uh, and it's their children who are going to hear all of these things again before they walk into the land. And it's very important that they observe these feasts. Um, and uh, and then you got the whole in chapter twenty four the lamp and the bread again. I would love to go through all this and talk about Christ and and all, what all this stuff means when we talk about Christ. But for today, we're we're just aiming at Deuteronomy. Finally, in verses uh, chapter twenty five and twenty six, uh, you got the uh, sabbatical year and the year of jubilee in chapter twenty five, and then chapter twenty six is very important, and this is the one that we ought to read. But we're kind of running quick here. But in chapter 26, you have all the, bless, the blessing and the curse uh, that will occur if Israel obeys the Lord. So, so the Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant. It's very different than the Abrahamic, the Noahic, the Davidic, the New Covenant. All those depend on God, His faithfulness, and exactly what He said. This one, you do this, I will do this. You do this... I will do this, and so if they obey him, if they submit to him, if they do what he's called them to do, he will bless them. If they disobey him, he lays out step by step the curses. If you look at Leviticus uh, uh, twenty-six, there you can see. I mean, he tells them exactly what will happen, and it is exactly what happened. So even when they disobey, it's like what First uh, Second Timothy. I can't remember the verse reference, but even if they are faithless, which they were, he will always be faithful. And so he faithfully brought about the curse that he prescribed right here in Leviticus, and we'll see that again in Deuteronomy. So he tells the parents, and he's going to tell the children before they go into the land. But um, yeah, this is an important one. In Leviticus 26, at the very end of that, again, you see, he tells them, even if they, and they, they will, I mean, in, in, um, in Deuteronomy, actually, it's so good. What time is it? 41, 51, 61. No, we can't. We can't read this whole thing. Uh, but, but basically, uh, he, he tells them uh, that, that uh, what, what he will do with the blessings, the penalties for disobedience, uh, like step by step what he's going to do. But actually, we will read this. I can't remember if I put this in there. Yes, at the very end, in Deuteronomy 26, uh, 40 uh, through 46. Okay, I put it in your notes. Look at this. It says, if they confess their iniquity, so this is after the curses have been played out. So, which is exactly what has happened and what is currently happening. He says that they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for the iniquity. Look at this. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my, also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I like how he, one by one, says, I will remember what I swore to those men, as well as I will remember the land. Here it is. For the land will be abandoned by them, and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances, and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, the people of Israel. This is Romans 9 through 11, right here. This is God's promise in the new covenant, right here. He says, For I am, I'm sorry, nor will I uh, so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. This is all God, going no matter how, Awful it gets. No matter how far they've been scattered, no matter how long they're out of the land, they must and will repossess this land because I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this would happen. It's an everlasting covenant. But I will remember them for I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. And these are the statutes and ordinances that He gave them on the at Mount Sinai. Even the new covenant. Promises and Ezekiel and Jeremiah repeat this same stuff for the people of Israel. So the, and uh, and and when you talk about it, Ezekiel, uh, anyway. So all that being said, there's at the very end uh, what he says he's going to do. That's just a, a foretaste of the new covenant. And we get to the book of Numbers. Here's a, a brief outline of Numbers. Basically, three things, real quick. You got the uh, you got this this generation, the first generation of Israel at Sinai after Leviticus. Uh, there's the numbering of the people and all that, and we'll talk about what's going on there. It's really number two here that has the most application in with Deuteronomy. In number two, the first generation, you know, they they, they reject the Lord, they spy out the land, they don't uh, trust Him, and then that whole generation dies out in the wilderness over the next forty years. We'll highlight place names because. He'll just say them in Deuteronomy. He'll be like, remember Kadesh Barnea, and you'll be like, what? And you need to know what happened there because that's what makes the whole thing make sense. And so I think that's where, here we start getting into place names. Before this, remember, land, land, land. Every time you see land, we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Um, every time you hear Sinai, Horeb, the mountain, mountain of God, you're, he's recalling what God did that day when he showed up or that during that time when he showed up in Mount Sinai. Um, but, but when you get to this, he's going to start giving place names. Tabra, uh, Meribah, uh, Kadesh, or Kadesh Barnea, those kind of things. And it's meant to remember. Remember what happened there. Remember what happened that day. That's very important for the book of Deuteronomy. So in the first section here, in the numbering, basically, uh, and, and I think I already yeah, I have it in your notes here. There's a timing marker, or time marker here. Leviticus takes one month. Numbers begins at the end of that month. Um, And there's, we've already read that, Exodus 40 and the numbers 1, 1 through 2. So now we're at the end of that month. um, And this is when he says, and let her be there, every male 20 years old and upward were numbered. This is, again, just a a tangent that I probably don't even need to say. But isn't it funny that God only holds those 20 20 years old and upward responsible for their adherence to this covenant? Which, again, I think has implications on why we don't baptize babies. Because they have no idea what they're saying, what they're committing to, and what they're thinking or doing. Uh, in the same way that God spared all the children that were there, that came out of Egypt with them, that saw the Red Sea parted, that heard. You know, I mean, there was every kid under 20 heard, saw all that stuff. They would have known this law as well. and uh, But they're, they're spared, and they, they begin the, the second generation that goes in. That's just a Brian thing. All right. Letter C. Uh, numbering, I think it's because I'm due the children's ministry, and I get this question all the time. Uh, and, and, and it's a good question, and it has. we have many good conversations about it. Letter C, numbering uh, and arrangement of the tribes of Israel. You get to see there that he actually numbers them. Every male 20 years old and upward, there's 603,550 of them in the first generation. What's cool is after he wipes out all of them, almost that same number uh, walk into the land from the second generation, God uh, you know, there's a lot of children born in the desert, uh, and and basically the same size nation walks in, um, but not the same people. Uh, you got the different tribes of the Levites laid out. This is important. You got the Kohathites who are in charge of all the holy things. You got the Gershonites that are in charge of the curtains and the coverings. So this is when you know when the the cloud is lifted and they got to take the tabernacle down. These are the groups that do different things. The Kohathites are the ones that are going to be carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to be carrying the the, the altar and the uh, showbread table and all that stuff. Uh, the Gershonites are the ones that carry all the curtains and the coverings and all that. Uh, and the Mer- Merorites are, uh, are the ones carrying the boards, the bars, the sockets, the, the frame. Uh, and uh, all that being said, that that, that means something in numbers. Because it is Korah who's part of the Kohathites. And, and it's the Kohathites that were in charge of the Holy of Holies that lead the rebellion against Moses... Uh, they, they, even though they were in charge of the most holy stuff, they wanted the place of Moses. Korah thought, I can lead this people as well as Moses can, and, and God wipes them out. And it's one of the uh, the first, uh, it's a very good example of what most dissentious groups do in whatever organization you got, whether it's the church or whether it's in Israel. Um, in Numbers 9, you got the Passover celebrated on the first of the month, uh, the first year, one year after they come out. Um, and actually, in numbers one, uh, I'm sorry, uh, numbers nine. Uh, sorry, this is one month back uh, that they, they, they celebrate Passover. That would be one month before Leviticus was done. And then in nine eleven, it says Passover was celebrated again for those who were unclean on the first. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they observed another Passover for the people that were unclean on the first Passover. But what it, what it just gives you a time marker. It was fourteen days after Leviticus that. They do the second Passover celebration for the people that run clean. And then that's when the cloud is lifted and they start heading out. So again, I just think those are really interesting and it helps you just know where we're at. And that's really where the narrative of Numbers begins. Numbers 10, 11 through 13, it says, Israel began their journey six days later, now in the second year, on the second month, on the 20th of the month. So that's when the clouds lifted, the tabernacle is taken down, and they start heading to the promised land. And it should have taken them, I can't remember if I wrote it down in here, but I think it was like 11 days to get there and to walk into the land. That, that should have been the end of the story. It can't, it can't should have been because there is no what if, only what is, and God knew that it's going to take 40 more years. But it was only 11 days journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea where the spies I mean, could have gone over and been like, good land, let's do this, and, and walked in. But... The tables turn, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't end up that way. So in chapter 11, before, now this is before the spies go in, Israel's already grumbling, complaining, and God's starting to, there's already people that, that die during this time. This is a big place name. In chapter 11, you got Tabara. So Tabara is where the people complain. They're tired of the manna. It's been over uh, a year, right, since the manna started, and they're just like, we're tired of eating manna. And God's like, I, I made this bread for you. It's heavenly bread. Like, But uh, all that being said, the people uh, became like those who complained in adversity. Hearing uh, In the hearing of the Lord, the Lord heard it. His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among, those, uh, burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. I don't know if they're on the outskirts going looking for other food. They're tired of the manna. And they're looking, I don't know. I, we don't know. It just knows that, that God's fire burned up those that were on the outskirts of the camp right there. But Tabara, remember that name, is when they complained about the manna. And the fire of the Lord consumed some of the Israelites. He's going to bring that up in Deuteronomy. Don't forget that. In eleven sixteen through 35, you got them at this place, uh, Kibroth, Hadava. And this is where they complain again. And they're like, we wish we had meat. In Egypt, we had all this meat. Meat, 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 meat. Now, I read about them in Egypt and it didn't sound like they were eating that well when they were enslaved and all that. But they're complaining about the manna. God sends quail. And it says, you know, that a wind blows the quail in from the sea. And, and look at it, it says, uh, all around the camp, about two cubits. So that's about, you know, three feet high. That's a lot of birds. Um, you know, they're on the surface of the ground. Uh, and, and it says they were a day's journey on both sides. So, again, it sounds like the Lord deposited a ton of quail on both sides of the camp. So, again, I don't know if this is just let's see who goes and gets it and eats it or what. But it says that the people spent all day and all night and all the next day. So they were really, really, they really desired this meat. They gathered the quail. He who gathered the least gathered 10 homers. I don't know if all gathered or just the ones that were tired of the manna and were the ones that complaining and were like, we're going to go get the quail. I don't know but as they spread them out for themselves around the camp and while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed the anger of the lord was kindled against the people the lord struck the people with a very severe plague uh, and the name of that place was called kibroth hadefah so he 's going to mention that he 's going to say, remember the in, in, in Taborah, we complained about the manna, the fire of the Lord came down. Remember when in, in Kibroth Hadavah, when you complained about the manna again, uh, put the birds out there, you went out and got the birds, and then the plague happened because they went out for the birds and then in chapter twelve, you got Miriam and Aaron speaking against Moses being like, "Why is he the only one qualified to lead?" And then Miriam uh, becomes leprous. Uh, but then the Lord heals her. Again, that's going to come up in Deuteronomy as well. Actually, I think I wrote, I wrote down in Deuteronomy where these things pop up too. So when we start reading it, you, again, just remember these place names. And it's like, that just helps you to go, that's right. That's what happened there. Uh, because if not, then you just read right over it. It's just a name. And you don't know what the Lord's referring to. In chapters 13 through 14 in Numbers, this is when the spies go out into the land. So they've made it. They're there on the border of the promised land. Uh, they're they like, hey, why don't we send out 12 spies? Moses says, that sounds like a good idea. So one person from each tribe goes out into the land to spy out the land. Um, this is They're in Kadesh, or it's also called Kadesh Barnea. Uh, so that's what, every time you see that come up, that's what he's reminding you of. This is where the spies went out. You were right there. Now they will circle back through here a couple of times on their journeys, but that's the main thing that happened other than, than Moses disobeying the Lord in the same place later. Uh, and, and then I wrote in here, it says at Kadesh, they brought back word from the Lord to all the congregations. They showed them the fruit of the land. Um, and, and again, but then they said the people are too big. They don't want to go in. And then in 32, eight, uh, he says, this is what your fathers did. Um, this is, this is in, uh, uh, yeah, this is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And so they, they rebel against the Lord here. Uh, in, in verses 25 to 33, you got the whole narrative of the bad report, Uh, But it's important in verses 30 through 31 there that Caleb was the one that quieted the people when they were like, they were the straw. They're like, we can't do this. The people are huge. They're going to kill us all. Caleb is the one that says, no, we should by all means go up and take possession of the land uh, of it. He says, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. And so, then all the congregation lifted up their voices, they cried, the people wept, the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation said, would, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? After all that, they're right on the edge, and they're just saying, this is a curse of God, God has tricked us, God is not faithful, why would he take us to this land just to die? Why didn't he just kill us in Egypt or kill us in the desert, you know? And so, again, it just shows their their lack of trust in, in the Lord, even after all of the, the things that he's done to prove his trustworthiness. And look at verse 20 there. It says, So the Lord said, and this is important, because this is what happens in the rest of the Numbers, and this is what the second generation needs to remember. He says, um, he says, So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely, all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. My servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and followed me fully, I'll bring him into the land. And then it says, now the uh, Amalekites and Canaanites that live in the valleys turn tomorrow, set out towards the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And that begins the 40 years in the wilderness and the first generation all dying out. Which is where we're at in Deuteronomy, the end of that. And now all those that he just spoke about are dead. And their children are about to go into the land. Uh, And he says... Say to them, as I, I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. I mean, that's what they kept complaining about. We're going to die. We're going to die. He's like, now you will die. Um, and he says, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to sell to you, except Caleb, son of Jephthah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, and this is actually what Deuteronomy is about. Your children. Whom you said will become a prey, I will bring them in, and they will know the land which you have rejected. And again, that's what we're at. We're reading Deuteronomy. He's renewing this covenant, and they're about to go and do that, inherit the land uh, that their fathers rejected. He says, your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. That's the narrative that explains what happens for the rest of Numbers. Number 16, you got Korah's rebellion. The only reason I put it in there is because the names of the people 250 leaders, uh, mainly Kohathites, men of renown, so they had good reputation. They were known amongst the people of Israel. They rise up against Moses. Uh, and then Dathan and Abiram were two of those men. He's going to mention Dathan, Dathan and Abiram in Deuteronomy, and it's to remind you of Korah's rebellion. Never mention Korah again. He's the one that shall not be named. But Dathan and Abiram, the leaders with Korah, they're the ones that he, every time he says, remember Dathan and Abiram, that's what he's talking about, that rebellion that happened with Korah. In chapter 20, they're back in Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, and this is where Miriam dies. This is the waters of Meribah, so this is important as well. This is where God tells Moses, speak to the rock, and I will bring water to, for the, the people of Israel. Uh, but it says that Moses disobeys him. Actually, I got it right here. He says, speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall bring forth water out of the rock, and the congregation will drink from it. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he says, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water from you, uh, for you out of this rock? So again, you know, all we got is the narrative here but the main thing is that Moses did not obey the Lord. You know whether or not that's his own self-exaltation, whether or not he's just in anger or whatever it is, because of this disobedience here and it's going to be brought up in Deuteronomy because Moses is like it's your fault I'm not going into that land, you know, and he's talking about this what happened at Meribah. It wasn't their fault, but but Moses here it says he lifted up his hand, he struck the rock twice, water came out. So God still watered the people of Israel. But then he tells Moses on the next page because you have not believed me. So Moses at least lacked faith and did not trust the Lord to do this in the way that the Lord prescribed it. Earlier, he, God did tell him to strike the rock. Here he said, speak to the rock. And Moses didn't obey him. He says, because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring the assembly into the land which I have given them. Uh, those were the waters of Meribah. So again, you're going to see that pop up. When you see Meribah, you're like, that's where Moses Hit the rock instead of speaking to it and and didn't treat the Lord as holy. And that's why Moses doesn't go in. He tells him Joshua is going to be the one to lead him in. Uh, Aaron dies at Mount Hor. Um, and uh, this is where Eleazar becomes a high priest, which, again, is going to be referred to in Deuteronomy. Uh, the fiery serpents, which, again, has awesome Implications on Christ and, and John 3 but for right now we're talking about Deuteronomy uh, but chapter 21 has a lot of stuff in it. You got the fiery serpents that come out and they have to look at the bronze serpent that, that they make and if they look if they trust what God says and look at the bronze serpent then they're healed from the venom of the, the snakes. Any other thing won't work. And again, Christ says I'll be lifted up in the same way you got to look to me. You got to trust me and believe in me. So I couldn't not say it but uh, that's going to be there. He's going to refer to that in Deuteronomy 8. Uh, this is where we meet Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Bashan, uh, and, that, and again, those are the verses in chapter 21 where you see this. And those guys are mentioned over and over and over, probably because we're getting to the tail end of this, and that second generation, I mean, they're probably in their 30s and 40s now, the older ones. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 40 years, so uh, uh, 40s to 60s, yeah. And they're, I mean, they were part of this war. They were part of this battle, you know. And so he's going to remind them of that. Remember God's faithfulness um, and and, uh, to not fear. So anyway, that comes. So every time you see Sion, Og, uh, the serpents, that's what we're talking about there. And then finally, in 22 through 25, they are on the plains of Moab. This is where Deuteronomy is actually given. But this is, there's still some of the first generation that hasn't, uh, been wiped out. And on the plains of Moab, this is where Balak uh, uh, comes out, king of. It's not king of Moab, is it? Is it Moab? Yeah, Balak, king of Moab. He brings Balaam, uh, a, a false prophet, with him. But what's so cool is God uses Balaam's lips to prophesy about Christ and many things that God will do, which is just, again, unique and cool. Uh, Balaam's killed uh, later because of his association with all this. And then anytime you see the sins of Peor, uh, this is referring to what happened on the plains of Moab and the final kind of getting rid of the first generation and basically engaging in immorality and worship of Baal of Peor. And through this, there's uh, uh, the, a bunch of the Israelites engage in immorality with the people of the land. And this is where Phineas, uh, out of the, the, the righteous anger of God, uh, goes through and, and kills one of the Levites that's doing this, and then they wipe out many of the the people that are doing this. And then in, in uh, chapter 25, uh, number uh, verses 10 through 14, you have this covenant that God makes with Phinehas. We call this the priestly covenant. I think this has, we talked about this in Revelation, implications on the second temple that will be built that Ezekiel talks about in the millennial kingdom. Uh, it will be the line that, through Phineas comes Zadok, and Zadok is the priest during, the, line, during the, the reign of David. And he was faithful when all the other priests failed, just like this example here in Numbers. And it's going to be the Zadokian priests that are in the temple during the millennial kingdom that do the sacrifices, which is <laughs> mind-blowing. But this is where God says it. He says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, because he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So I did not destroy the sons of Israel my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I have given him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. So that's the end of the first generation. That was the last of God's judgment on the first generation. And then basically 26 through 36 is the second generation. The people that Deuteronomy is given to, the ones that are hearing it, that, are, that, are, that this applies to and they're going into the land, this is kind of the beginning of them being the, the, at the forefront of the story, maybe, if you want to say it that way. Uh, he numbers them in, in uh, Numbers 26. It's just like Numbers 1. Numbers 1 was their parents. Numbers 26 is them. And so he numbers all those that are 20 years old and upward at this point. Uh, And there was six hundred one thousand seven hundred thirty. So I wrote it down: eight one thousand eight hundred twenty less men, twenty years old and upward, after the forty year wandering and judgment of God in the desert. Chapter twenty-seven: you got the daughters of Zelophehad, which again is mentioned again in Numbers thirty-six, and uh, and you got Joshua uh, succeeding Moses there. Uh, you got the laws of the sacrifices, uh, again, given to the second generation. So it's almost like a Leviticus 5 overview very quickly. Those, those sacrifices that we saw in Leviticus, I'm sorry, 1 through 7, he's, he's like, here's, uh, here's the sacrifices again. And then you have the appointed times again, given to the second generation. Because you remember, all these things were said to their parents who were dead, and it's almost like a, an overview. Here's the appointed times and the feasts you should observe. Here's what the sacrifices are. And he starts going through these different things, and this is a precursor to Deuteronomy. In chapter 31, um, Israel destroys Midian. So this is God enacting his revenge on Balaam and Balak and the people of Moab because they uh, uh, caused Israel to engage in immorality and worship Baal. And so, again, Israel was judged by God. The first generation was wiped out. But God is like, now we're going back and killing them. And so they go and, uh, and they destroy uh, all the people of Midian on the plains of Moab. And it's called the Lord's vengeance in, in uh, verse 3. And then after that, you got the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half a tribe of Manasseh are going to settle in the land on the other side of the Jordan. There's a whole discussion about that. Uh, they're going to live in the land of, um, of Og and of Sion. Uh, and then in chapter 33, you got a review of the 40 years in the desert. It's like a real quick, here's what you did. You know, It's like a, a review of all the places they went and the, the way they circled the desert for 40 years. Um, In chapter 34, he gives them instruction for dividing the land because they're the ones that are actually going to divide the land. In chapter 35, you got the cities of the Levites and the cities of uh, refuge for someone that kills a man accidentally and is able to live there until um, there can be a trial and his innocence or guilt can be proven. Uh, That's actually brought up in Deuteronomy 19, which is important. And then chapter 36, you got the daughters of... Zalophehad again, which is neat. Basically, I had all daughters. It'd be my case. So, I die, and who gets all the stuff? Because I didn't have a son. Well, he says, you give it to, the daughters will get it, but they need to marry within the tribe, so that the land allotted to them does not leave the tribe that they're in. And So, so twice is obviously important, because they get two full chapters in the book of Numbers. And that's it. So, there we are. So, you got, we're, we're talking to the second generation, he's prepared them for worship, sacrifices, all that sort of stuff, the appointed times, and then Moses is going to stand and expound to them uh, the law that God has given them, and three sermons in Deuteronomy, like we said a couple weeks ago, and he's going to tell this second generation, it's going to start with a a brief overview of the stuff that we just talked about, so he's doing uh, a a reminder sermon, if you want to say that, remember what happened uh, and then after that, he goes into all the things they must remember. And at the very end, you've got uh, this glimpse into the new covenant that we'll talk about that's really cool. And then Moses dies, and Joshua leads them in. But that's what Deuteronomy is all about. So we're on the plains of Moab. Uh, all the parents are dead now. Uh, the second generation is there. They've been prepped with some of the stuff that happened in Numbers. And then Moses is going to give them three sermons, renew the covenant, which is what it's all about. And then they're going to go into the land. So... We'll start that in two weeks when I get back. But I think it's going to be a great study. And like I said, we're going to be also focusing on the implications of Deuteronomy to us in the body of Christ, the church. Uh, Even though we're not Israel, there's many things that you can learn from Deuteronomy and from the Old Testament that has major um, implications on how we live, how we view God, who God is, what Christ is and has done and will do. Um, Even New Covenant stuff that's just uh, really neat and exciting. So. That's all I got for today. Any questions, concerns? Yeah. Did they ever get of Caleb's age when he's uh, uh, no? When he's uh, age? Well, you know, I, I believe I, I could be wrong, but I think later it, he talks about being eighty years old after they get into the land. Uh, okay. So I'm guessing you know he'd been in his around forty maybe before. I don't know how much time passed after they, uh, but but he, he basically goes up and takes is it Hebron? Is, I think it was 85. 85? Okay, yeah. And he's like, and he says, I'm like, I'm 85 years old or whatever. <laughs> he's like, I want this city. He took the best city, too. Hebron is like, like ancient, you know, stronghold of the land of Canaan. So Caleb's like, I want the best. <laughs> and he got it. Uh, any other questions? All right. Well, that was fun. I hope that was helpful. Like I said, we'll jump into Deuteronomy when we get back. Let me pray for us real quick. We'll be dismissed.